listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is a show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 259. I think that's right. I think yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Did you pause? What's going on, Mark? What's going on is we're not together while we're recording this. Yeah, that's kind of different. Very different. So I'm sitting in Midland, Texas. We're actually doing a product launch for an oil field service company, doing live podcasts, shooting video. And so I just couldn't get back to the global headquarters in time for Paige and I to record. So I'm actually recording this from my hotel room. So everybody keep their fingers crossed that my bandwidth stays up so we can get this thing done. <laughs> And speaking of getting stuff done, somebody really got it done with a review. Five stars, excellent commentary on oil and gas current events. Whew. All right. Leave a review because they deserve one and not because they have been pleading for one, which we have been pleading for one page. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Page and a predecessor deserve immense credit for all they have done for education in the oil and gas industry. As the flagship for OGGN, this program serves as a nexus for their efforts. It provides information not only about the industry, but also everything OGGN. I have two challenges for Mark and Page. First, you're a big proponents of getting young people to industry. However, in looking at the OGGN site, I cannot find anything about your internship program. Guilty as charged. <laughs> we have yet to update the website. It will be on there soon. I'm just not sure where. Next one, if you have one challenge to make it more readily accessible to your audiences, and if you don't, I challenge you to start one. Oh, the internship program. So he's actually challenging us to start an internship program. Okay, it's top secret stuff happening, but this is already in the works. So you don't have to worry about that. Second, rig count is a great historic measure of activity in the oil and gas industry. However, the count is relative to the operational efficiency in the industry. I think your guys are smart enough and OGG and has the resources to begin your own metric for tracking activity. Some combination of spot gas prices, shipping activity, storage, and price might be interesting. Thanks for all you do. Eric from the United States. So Eric, thank you for this very detailed review and a couple of challenges. The internship program we've been working on, it will come out this year. I just can't tell you too much about it right now. The second thing about coming up for our own metric, we actually have that, Eric, and you want to know what it is? It's the actually how many F-150 wrappers are for sale in the Permian area. So <laughs> there's three metrics I look at to look at what's happening to the industry. One is something called the Baltic Dry Index, which is the measurement of how many sea cans or containers are out in the world's ocean and what the rates are going for. The next is airline traffic globally. I always like to see the consumption of jet fuel go up. And then honestly, the number of F-150 Raptors for sale in Midland. If there's zero or very low for sale, things are booming. If there's a lot for sale, things aren't. So there's one of the metrics we actually use. And I do agree with you, Eric, that rig count doesn't mean as much as it used to. But man, I really appreciate this long review. And if you'd like Eric and have me read your long review or short review, very simple. Just submit one and we'll give you a big shout out. This is First Friday Q&A time for the questions. You want to take the first one? Well, it's not really a question. It's really Ludwig <laughs> going. For IBM, I would go t-shirts, stickers, and caps. So that's his input on that. But Gilberto, which is a uh, cost for... Skip, are you yes, skip I, Yep. yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mind yourself. Okay. Gilberto, cost recover manager, has a question. Started to listen to your podcast only this year, and I find it awesome. My question is, any podcast, video, or book you can recommend regarding cost recover in the PSA contract? So, just happened to have this on my top 10 reading list. 
Look for a book by Richard Lazano, L-A-N-Z-A, Lazana. It's literally called Cost Recovery. It's an excellent book that hits the basics. And then there's also a production sharing revenue book. It's actually called Production Sharing Agreements in Oil and Gas, right? So uh, you get both those on Amazon. It's two good places to start. That's getting like uber geeky. I don't know of any videos that are out there, but there's so many videos on YouTube. I would not be surprised if you Googled it or if you search on YouTube around cost, cost recovery, you should be able to find some. Cool. All right. So the next is from Jelani Clement. I love listening to your podcast. I'm currently finishing up my second master's in natural gas engineering and management. I used to work in the utilities and would like to return to the energy business once I graduate. I want to also get into teaching. One of my main ways is through creating a learning center for pipeline welders. I live in Virginia and grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Over the years, I've seen the city of Detroit dismantled and the vocational programs for kids who didn't want to go to college. I would like to be a part of the change and assist in the innovation of the oil and gas markets amongst my community. I know I would need grant funding for this process and wanted to know where I could go about getting grants from oil and gas companies to get a jump started in this process. All right, JC. Thanks, JC. Yeah, so thanks for the question, JC. He doesn't actually say where he lives now, so I'm going to kind of give a general answer to this. Yeah, so I JC, think that's a chick, dude. Oh, you think JC's a chick? Yeah, Jelani. I don't know. I'm just yeah. guessing. So let's just go with they. Okay. So, <laughs> so they. And Jelani, I'm sorry if we butchered your name or your sex is no ill intention there. A couple of things. You can get the oil and gas companies to sponsor this. It's going to take you forever, quite frankly. You got to meet the right people, get on the right list, and then do the due diligence and do the work. And there's a thousand other people like you fighting for grant money. I think there's an easier way to go around this, but it depends on where you live. If you live in a state that has an oil and gas presence, you know, Texas, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, North Dakota, California, you know, any of the states that have an oil and gas presence, there's oil and gas associations there. And most of them have some type of scholarship or endowment fund that they contribute to, or in, and in some cases, many. So look at API, SPE, IADC, look at all those, find a local organization in your area and bring your idea to them about starting trade schools and actually the vocational, you know, the skilled labor type of stuff. Everybody's all over that. My API chapter here in Houston that I'm on the board of directors, we have a program for underprivileged high school kids teaching welding, pipe fitting, machining. And it's fantastic. Every one of those kids that's went through the program has gotten a job in the oil and gas industry. That's probably the quickest way to get money started. Once you get that going, you can use that same industry association, that same API, SPE, IADC, or whatever, to then introduce you into the Chevrons, Exxon's, and Shells that where you will get bigger dollars. It's just the process will go on for longer. So JC, my suggestion would be to start in your local communities. Just reach out and join the local oil and gas industry associations. Let them help you fund this project, which I think is a fantastic project. And audience, if you'd like to help JC fund this, reach out to me. I'd be happy to connect you back to JC. And then later, use those connections and your smaller success to, to solicit money from big oil and gas companies. JC, if I can help you with any of this, reach out to me directly because this is something that we support company-wide. Also Hand over a fist. Yeah, yeah. Personally. So yeah, you know, super shout out for actually doing this. All right. So the next comes from Jason Lee. Hi, Mark and Paige. Love the show. And I'm a longtime listener. I'm writing in response to some comments made on episode 256 around China's motives behind buying illegal oil. In the episode, Mark talked about a fundamental cultural difference between China and other countries that are based on Judeo-Christian religions and thus have a concept of good and bad. And that China didn't have this concept because they're based on a Buddhist foundation. To put simply, that's an inaccurate generalization. 
Buddhism was never a majority religion anywhere, and even today observed by maybe 10 to 15% of people in China. In my view, as both American of Chinese descent, as well as someone that's minored in Chinese studies in college, I would argue it's because the people in charge of China today were born in the 1950s and 60s, which was the time of the Great Leap Forward, where tens of millions died from famine. What comes out of this is a whole generation of people who will do anything to get the most out of something, whether that's money, land, or in this case, oil. The whole social credit score thing that's come about in recent years is an attempt by the government to eliminate some of those behaviors. The effectiveness is still yet to be seen. There is absolutely a cultural element at play here, but please don't think that all Chinese people have no concept of what's good and bad. I hope this was able to provide y'all with some perspective on this and look forward to the next episode. Jason, thank you, thank you, thank you. So anytime we do something on this show that we're either unintentionally wrong about or we don't understand what we're talking about, we really appreciate you reaching out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I actually misunderstood this. I didn't realize, but it makes total sense. I didn't realize that because of the people that are in political power right now were born during that time that they have less hesitation to do anything to get ahead makes total sense. I really did think it was based on the differences in religions. I never want anybody to think that I am discrediting anybody out there. I love everybody. I love the Chinese. I love the Russians. You know, I even love the people that don't like the oil and gas industry, just not as much as some other people, but <laughs> just really, I sincerely appreciate you right now and correct me on this. So my comment looks like it was right, but what I based it on was wrong. And it looks like instead of this being based on the differences in religious backgrounds, it's basically based upon the differences in culture because of the great leap forward. So Jason Lee, once again, thank you for sending this out and thank you for educating me in the audience. All right. So the next one's from John Rossler. I'm a third year petroleum wait, engineering. Wait, wait, what? What? His, go back, get his name right because he, he likes you. It's not John. Who? I said Jack. Oh, you said John. Oh, well, maybe you just can't hear me in Midland. How about that? <laughs> Could be. Jack Rossler. Maybe I said it wrong. I don't know. Anyway, I'm a third year petroleum engineering student at ULL, also the vice president of the Society of Petroleum Engineers chapter over here. I've attended many luncheons and presentations, but you and Paige take the cake for the most attention grabbing and factual conversations. There's emphasis. It was in caps. Yeah. Unless it's about China. <laughs> I just finished your latest podcast. Once again, you and Paige did an amazing job at informing your audience. I started on the way home from class and sat in the driveway for another 10 minutes to finish it. Once I am home, I'm proud Wait, to say stop that. Right there. Stop right there. <laughs> Jack, don't let your neighbor see you sitting in the driveway and listen to a podcast. Well, anyway, I mean, I get do it. what you I want, Jack. <laughs> when your neighbors ask why you're in your car, then you tell them about oil and gas this week. That's what you should do. Anyway. I'm proud to say I've listened to every one of the Oil and Gas This Week podcasts since June of 2020, some of which I listened to multiple times to keep my buddies informed. And yes, sometimes my old podcast does get on my girlfriend's nerves. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to leave a review, but I've never known where to leave it. So I'm dumping it in your inbox. Five out of five stars. As a student who often has to deal with criticism about my major choice, I have to thank you both for better informing me on how I can educate others on the truth about our industry. Also, I know most people don't mention this in reviews, but the sound quality is incredible. It doesn't hurt my ears like some of the other podcasts out there. Kudos to y'all's team. Next time you find yourself in Cajun country, shoot me a call or a text. 
I could even set you up with a tour of the campus and our facilities or organize a presentation with our students and grab a bite to eat, of course. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, so Paige. I mean, he knows the way to my heart. He said food. (laughs) So I've had conversations with Jack and Paige. You and I are going to University of Louisiana. Oh, that's that trip. Cool. That's that, Jack. I'm stoked. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to do a live podcast for the SPA University chapter, but we're also inviting local high schools. SPA or SPE, since you want to be all check it you know you want to check me on john and said jack okay so spe and then we're also inviting local high school kids that have an interest in the oil and gas industry and oh that's also, cool also inviting business leaders from the lafayette oil and gas business so it's gonna be a packed house there's gonna be a small charge we're gonna do drinks and food we do a live podcast take questions and all the money that we raise is go to the spe chapter that jack runs awesome so jack, number one thanks for reaching out and number two People out there, if you don't think that reaching out to us makes a difference, if you don't think leaving us a review or saying, hey, do you mind coming to our university does anything, I'm telling you, ask Jack. It does. Yeah. And if you don't know what ULL is, it's University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Yeah, my alma mater. Yeah. Sort of, kind of. All right. So the next one is from Robert Kaiser. He is a milk hauler, Norm Howard Trucking. To re- and his input on the new prizes to replace the IBM shirts. How about an OGGN coin, physical coin, metal that is, That's which a great we've idea. been talking about. Yeah. So, Robert, we saw your idea come in. We've talked about it. We haven't made a decision yet, but I'm going to tell you right now, you're in the top 10%. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sending this out. All right. Next one's Oh, Brendan Webb, my buddy, sales development specialist at H&P. Enverus is a great way to track what drilling rigs are actively working on in North America. How can I track specific international rigs that go to work outside North America? I want to validate for each international rig that goes to work. My company has bid and lost the work, declined a bid, or we're not aware of the opportunity. Thank you. Happy belated birthday, Paige. Thanks, Brendan. Hey, Brendan, I got some kind of not great news for you. As far as I know, that exact information that you're looking for is nowhere on the internet for free. You can buy it, buy it from IHS if you want to. Baker Hughes does an international rig count, but they don't have the exact information that you're looking for. The other place I would check out is go to findoffshorerigcount.com, findoffshorerigcount.com. There's also a well site a navigator, but I think Wellsite Navigator is just in the U.S. But other than that, Brendan, if, if you want that exact information, I think you're going to have to buy it. I think you have to go ahead and pony up to IHS. Yeah, and what happens is with Baker Hughes, their international account's always at least a month behind, at right. least. So, Yeah, well, what he wants to do is validate what rigs his company bid upon and then lost mm-hmm. the work. And that's the hard part to figure out because those rigs, as they move around the world and some are in dry dock and some are waiting to be crewed and some of them are stored. It's really hard to get an accurate close to real time insight to that. So that's going to be a little bit of work. I tell you what, Brendan, if you figure this out and there is a way to do this for free, I bet our audience would love it. So if you figure oh, it out, yeah, that'd be great. Way, We'd use it too. Yeah. Reach out to us again and let us know what you found. Yeah. Okay, next one is Rudolf Huber, president at LNG Austria. Mark, I heard you rattle off on Russia and its gas game on Europe on your podcast today. I would like to put in a little balance into your words. I do think that Russian gas for Europe is problematic on many levels, but the current gas crisis of Europe is of Europe's making, not Russia. When Europe does anything it can to break up long-term contracts and goes for more and more gas spots, it must bear the consequences. 
Russia has always wanted to extend long-term agreements, but Europe used every trick in the book to cut those ambitions short. Russia bled massively and for many years in the process. And still to this day, they have delivered all the gas they are contractually obliged to in the last molecule. The crisis is Europe's responsibility, not Russia's, and Russia is also not to blame. Russia plays geopolitical games. That's a given, but they are not to be blamed for everything under the sun. I don't think we blamed them for everything under the sun. So, Rudolph, if I came across as blaming Russia for everything, so number one, my apologies. Number two, I really don't. Actually, if you talk to anybody at OGGN, one of my bucket list things is actually to go to Russia. I'd like to spend a week or two there, and I'd like to meet and talk and get to learn the Russian oil and gas industry. I've changed planes in Russia, but I've never done more than that. And the Russian oil and gas industry fascinates me. Things such as nobody cares about predictive maintenance. Like, I just want to understand that. But some hard work and really hard work and really smart people in the in Russian oil and gas industry. The long-term contracts, that's a negotiation, right? So Europe doesn't want long-term contracts because there's a chance that gas will be really cheap and then they're paying too much for it. Russia, of course, wants the long-term contracts because they can use those long-term contracts to finance their infrastructure projects like Nordstrom like the pipeline project. So I will politely disagree with you, Rudolph, that I think this issue we're having with supplying Europe enough natural gas at a competitive price is something that Russia has a lot of control, not 100%, but I'd say 80% control. Europe, of course, could do longer term contracts, but that's just putting extra money taking extra money off the table and putting in the pockets of the national oil companies in Russia. And Europe knows that. The other thing that's, that we got to be real careful of here, or Russia needs to be real careful of, is we're getting to the point now, depending on what happens in the U.S. political arena in the next, say, five or six years, is if everybody wanted it to happen, we could supply Europe with a lot of natural gas at a very competitive price. And Europe would also sign longer term contracts with us instead of Russia, which would then allow us to build even more infrastructure to ship even more gas. Do I think that's going to happen? No, because our political administration could it happen. And I think it would be a benefit for everybody, including Russia in some ways. Yes. My ultimate goal or my ultimate dream with the relationships between Russia and the U.S. around hydrocarbons is I think Russia and the U.S. should be buddies, not Russia and OPEC. And there's a lot of to be gained there. But do I even think that's going to happen? No, I'd like to see it happen, but I'm not blaming Russia. Oh, I, wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to be buddies with this administration either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not the Russian administration. It's our own administration. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but since you brought it up, yeah, I agree. But yeah, I don't care. Apologies, Rudolph, if it comes across like I'm hating on Russia because I don't. I love the country. I admire it. All right. So next one's from Joanna Spears, Project Accounted at Onbridge. Love the show, guys, even with Mark's segues. Paige, what's going on with the Build It Back Better Act? Are the royalty rates going to increase on federal lands while I'm paying $4 a gallon for gas? Well, unfortunately, yes. The legislation would increase the royalties payable on production from federally owned onshore lands from 12.5% to 18.75% on newly Jeez. issued leases. Yeah. The existing royalty rate of 12.5% or one eighth has not been increased on federal lands since the Mineral Leasing Act, which was signed into law by President Woodrow Wilson in like 1920. Before a terminated or canceled oil and gas lead may be reinstated, the proposed legislation is to also requires that back royalties are paid and future royalties become payable at the rate of 25%. Further, the new leases granted on the outer, you know, the OCS would be 
issued at a rate of not less than 14%. So I got a little bit of a problem with this. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine you're not the only one, Mark. So you're adding cost to an industry that can't really bear it. And all we could do is pass it on the consumer. And unfortunately, like Joanne said, she's paying $4 a gallon now for gas. She probably doesn't want to pay $4.50 or $5 a gallon. I know a little bit of the history about this with President Woodrow Wilson, that one-eighth was a number that him and his the smartest financial people on his cabinet got together and figured out saying, look, no matter what happens in history, no matter what the dollar's valued at, no matter what the dollar buys, so no matter what inflation's going on, if we always keep it at one-eighth, it'll automatically adjust itself, right? So if the lease goes for $100 this year, it goes for $10,000 next year, that one-eighth is still proportional. Why anybody would – well, I know why they're messing with it, but unfortunately, this doesn't make me happy at all. I didn't even know this was going on. So, Joanna, thanks for asking Paige this question. All right. The next one's from Anonymous. My favorite podcast in the world, educational, easy to listen to, often humorous and always insightful. Plus your audio quality rocks. Woo. We got two of those in one sitting. Yeah. One favor. Can we please get back to weekly releases? Working on it, dude. We're busy too. We'll do our best. And here's my question. If we look at the anti-fossil fuel movement as a marketing problem, how do you both think we should approach this as an industry? Keep up the amazing work. All right. So Anonymous is actually a VP of marketing at a super major. I get why he's coming at this from how would you look at this as a marketing problem, which is an interesting question, Paige. So if I look at the anti-fossil fuel movement as a pure marketing problem, take my emotions out of it and look at it as somebody's marketing better than we are, how do we fix that? A couple of things. So one thing I've noticed recently is the anti-fossil fuel movement is all over social media when things are going their way. So when people are talking great about them, when they're having statistics and data that supports their cause, when you're having people protest fossil fuels, they're all over social. And they're really, honestly, they're really good at it. In fact, they were way better at it than the oil and gas industry was for the last decade. Right. Slowly catch up. However, what I've noticed is when they catch flack in the news, such as birds of prey being killed, the inability to dispose of windmill blades, solar change in the ground topography, they have no idea how to react. Unlike us, we've been beaten up in social media for at least 15 years. We've learned how to handle the negative stuff. So if I look at it from a pure marketing point of problem, the oil and gas industry should spend a lot of time doing grassroots type of marketing. I mean, literally think of TikTok where you pick up your phone, do that sort of stuff. At the same time, whenever the anti-fossil fuel people are beating us up, All it takes is a a little bit of something that doesn't support their cause, and they don't know how to react to it from a marketing point of view. The other thing is how many faces, how many eyeballs can you get in front of your product or service? The renewable space is really easy to get eyeballs in front of because everybody thinks that they're saving the planet, that it's fun, it's green, it's high tech. It's hard to get a lot of eyeballs on what we do in oil and gas because people think we're heavy, dirty steel destroying the planet. But what if we could get more eyeballs on our industry because we show them that we complete some of the most technical projects in the world? What if we show people the fact that we've been using high-performance computing before anybody even use it? What if we showed the world that we invented lithium-ion batteries? Right? And so I think one of the problems that we have as an industry is we don't think of this as marketing. We think of it as PR, which is a totally different thing. So really interesting question. Paige, you got any input on that? Well, so when I read this, my brain went immediately back to the protesters at the pipeline and the absolute shit show they left after protesting, all the garbage, everything, but you barely heard about it. I just feel like 
I'm not a very negative person, but the way they blast us negatively, we, I feel we should also do the same thing back. Show what yeah. they're doing wrong. And that not everything they have to say or do is all, you know, gravy. Yeah, <laughs> gravy. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's late in the day. I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's another thing that while you were talking, I realized even I cringed slightly inside when you were going down the route of showing the negative consequences. That's something else about the oil and gas industry that the anti-fossil fuel people don't have. We don't like disparage. We don't think it's right to disparage our competition. I can tell you story after story after story. I can tell you a story around BP Macondo that the company's equipment that capped that well, the CEO came on, went out to this entire global organization and said, not a word, not a word that we helped count that well because our competitor's equipment was the one that lost control and we're the one that saved it. No other industry in the world would keep that quiet. They would use that for marketing. And the anti-fossil fuel movement definitely loves to show the negativity that we do. But because we don't think it's right to think that way or promote that way, we don't do it at all. I've never right. seen anybody in the oil and gas industry show anything negative from a marketing point of view about the renewable energy. So you got a really good point, Paige. It's funny that even I cringed up a little bit because we just don't do that, yet they do. So there's something really important there. Yeah. All right. So the next one's from Tara Ballard, student at U of H. I think I saw you two in person last week at George R. Brown. I tried to catch up to say hi. I turned around and you were both gone, <laughs> which was totally okay. How do you think students should best use oil and gas trade shows and conferences while they're still in school? It's a great question. And Tara, we didn't run away because it was you. I don't remember seeing you. If we would have you know, noticed you that you wanted to talk to us, we would have came up. So, Oh, I moved quick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so a couple of things. Most of the big conferences, Tara have a student program where you get to come in for free, you get to come in early, and you're basically volunteered to work at the conference. That is something a lot of people don't know about, and it's so valuable. You get to meet a lot of the people that are putting on the conference. You get great parking. Like if you come to OTC and you're a student volunteer, you get to park right up next to the dome, right, where all the rest of us have to walk 30 miles. And you get to move the people that are doing the actual presentations, and it's just a great way to interface outside the conference itself. Outside of that, also look at it. So University of Houston, the other thing is a lot of these conferences will give student organizations free booth space, but you just have to ask how cool would it be if you brought you and your peers? I don't know what your degree is at University of Houston, but let's say you're in the engineering program. How cool would it be brought a handful of your engineering peers and set up a booth at one of the big oil and gas conferences just to meet prospective employers in the future and put a sign up there. It's like, we're graduating in two years. We're looking for prospective employers. I promise you the people that are walking around the conference will stop and at least have a conversation with you. And then finally, just going and walking around and learning is also super valuable. Yeah. And then try to keep up. Oh. <laughs> oh, and speaking of NAEP and colleges, shout out to Veronica Wild with Western Colorado University for mentioning us in the NAEP magazine. Oh, that's right. We were mentioned in the NAEP magazine and they're actually big fans of yours. Yeah. We take a picture every NAEP. So that's our new, uh, <laughs> our new thing. Yeah. So we have two down. <laughs> All right. So next one is from Justin Lewis, which is an analyst at McKinsey. Great podcast, guys. Always on my must-listen list. Mark, I've heard you talk about a $100 barrel number, and it's important to the industry. How can you break that down again, please? Also, how much stock do you put into oil breaking 200 sometime in the future? Thank you. Uh, I love these analysts. 
<laughs> I'm not making fun of you, Justin. I'm really not. The $100 barrel number, it's a great number on the oil field service side. It's a great number on the operator side. The problem is here in the U.S., and I'm breaking this down like you asked, here in the U.S., most of the hydrocarbons that produce are produced by small independent operators, not the Exxons and the Chevrons. And right around that $100 barrel number is when everybody can go in production and just pump out as much oil as they can. So that sounds great. But we're still not fully recovered. So jet fuel consumption is going up, yay, which I keep very close track of. But we're still not globally at the pre-pandemic consumption level of hydrocarbons. And so my fear, and this is shared with a lot of people. I actually had conversations today with people about this. My fear is at that $100 a barrel, all these independent operators are going production. And then we're going to have a surplus of hydrocarbons of oil and gas. And it's going to drive the price down. And we'll be back to a $10 or $20 barrel number. The problem with that is it happens during this inflation cycle. It's literally going to destroy your economy. So, so I just don't want that to happen. I'm fine with $99 a barrel. Unfortunately, I am 100% convinced we're going to hit $100 a barrel. So what I'm hoping is a couple of things that the supply chain constraints, the labor constraints, and the lack of capital is going to slow down the independent operators going to production. So it's not going to keep them for flooding the market. It will delay it. It will drag it out, which may actually be good. So it may coincide with the increase in consumption globally. So I just don't want to see a huge spike in production. The $200 a barrel for oil sometimes in the future, that's clickbait. It could happen. You know, we have stuff going on right now in the Ukraine, stuff going on in the Middle East that if they both popped off at the same time, would probably drive all over $200 a barrel, but it'd be for a very, very short time. There's a lot of, actually, it may not be your company, Justin, but there's a lot of the analyst companies out there that want more eyeballs in their research. They love to put stuff out there like, our experts see $200 a barrel in 90 days, and it's just clickbait. When you actually read the article, they're talking about some unforeseen, almost impossible, perfect storm to bring it there, not reality. So I don't see it hitting $200 a barrel unless something major happens. And like I said, it could, but it'll drop back down unbelievably quickly. Great. All right. Final question is from Sam Lester, manager, Rockies Field Techs at Halliburton. Huge fans of the show as well as industry leaders and journey to the energy C-suite. Our entire team listens and we sometimes use you for safety moments when you bring up real HSEQ issues. Anyway, two questions. Paige, <laughs> you always look so amazing and put together. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. As a woman in the industry, I sometimes struggle with how to dress so I don't stand out, but you always look professional without freezing my butt off or sweating like a pig. Don't even get me started about shoes. Where do you shop and do you have a makeup artist, stylist, do your face and or hair? Inquiring minds want to know. I shop on Amazon. <laughs> I buy things in multiple sizes and return half of it. <laughs> I like fashion. I'm pretty into it. And my favorite color is red. So that's why you always see me with red lipstick. I do all my hair and makeup myself. I'm not that bougie. <laughs> but I like to keep it simple. I know what I like and I just stick to that in short. If you want to know even more, reach out to me directly. I'm not going to bore everybody else with all of this. And then Mark, she also asked, you always close with, remember, folks, do great work and pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Where did that come from? Keep turning it to the right, guys. Love you. Oh, she's so sweet. And the I know. Is, well, the reason we know it's a she is her name is actually Samantha, but she goes by Sam, which is cute. Paige, that's really pretty cool how you answer that question. I am curious. 
and I'm curious around this because in here in Houston, when I go in office buildings, a lot of the women are literally have blankets around them, even in the middle of summer when it's 105 degrees because they're they're freezing because the air condition is so low. So, and then I personally also sweat a lot. So I do think it's cool how she asked, how do you look professional without freezing your butt off or sweating? Like well, a, it's, a lot of it is I always have a jacket. I always have a jacket because I'm always cold. And that used to be a problem for me when I worked in an office, man, I would get so sick because of the radical change in temperature between being in the office with all these dudes wearing suits, being hot, like you say you get right. And you know, it's on like, you know, 65 or not even 70 degrees. And I'm not going to say where I did this, but there was one time I went and super glued a thermostat. <laughs> I super glued it and eat my shorts. <laughs> there you go, Sam. Super glue. <laughs> you can have whatever temperature you want. <laughs> yeah. And then the way I close this, honestly, Sam, that's something I just put together because it's how I think. I love to work. I love to make money. But I sincerely believe that regardless of why you think you're here on the earth, that the most important thing is our relationships with other people. And I don't just mean the people that you're, you know, share children's with or your girlfriends or boyfriends or family. I mean, all people, even the ones that maybe you don't wouldn't normally get along. I just think it's important that those relationships are nurtured and maintained no matter what. So that's where that comes from. So, you know, do great work, which is something I, we believe in as a team. And I believe in personally pay it forward. You always need to help the next generation and hopefully we'll be back. So we'll see you next time. So that's where that <laughs> <laughs> Great, Mark. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs> well, you know, Paige, seriously, and listeners, seriously, one day I'm going to say that, and then it'll be the last time I say it. Oh, right? yeah. that's that's a good point. Yeah. So, you know, and this is probably too much information, but it's just between us and our two million friends, right? Yeah. I actually have a tattoo on my butt of the Grim Reaper, and that goes back to the Marine Corps days. But that reminds me that every day may be my last. Literally, death is on my ass. And when you think like that, the world's a better place. The big problems that you think you have aren't so big. The stuff that you wish you had is not that important. The fact that you have a roof over your head, food in your tummy, and somebody that you can talk to is everything. So anyway. Well, I definitely identify with the pay it forward stuff. I think I'm incredibly blessed. And as long as I'm blessed, I try to help people out as best I can. And I don't want anything in return. Yeah, I've been there. Someone already did that for me. So I would love that, you know, people pay it forward for someone else in need. So 100%. Yeah. What also is 100% is the Canon, where we do our industry <laughs> mixers. If you're in the Houston area and you need a co-working space, walk up to the front desk, slam your fists on the desk and say, I am with OGGN, and they will call the cops. Don't However, slam. <laughs> don't do all that. Don't listen if, to him. If you don't slam and just say, I'm with OGGN or I listen to OGGN, they'll give you a free day pass. You go work there, hang out. It's a really cool place. And before we get further, Paige, we have our industry mixer Thursday, what, the 28th, I believe? Yes. But we also have the International Women's Day mixer. When is that? Yeah, so OGGN is partnering, well, we already are a partner, with Women Offshore Foundation, and we're doing an industry mixer to honor International Women's Day. The theme is Break the Bias, and that will be on Thursday, March 10th from 6 to 9, just in the regular Fourier place at the Cannon. We do everything at the Canon, guys, and specifically the Canon West. So love to see you. Come say hi. I'll be moderating a panel with some powerful female players in the industry. Love it. Love it. We'll all be there. There is no IBM t-shirt to give away because they're all gone. But we're Well, I mean, people are actually telling us what they want, and that's what we want to hear. Yep. Speaking of what people may or may not want to hear, what's the weekly <laughs> recount, Major? <laughs> 
Oh, fine. The United States is at 635. We're up 22. Canada is at 219, up one internationally as of January, 841. So we're up seven there. Awesome. And then go to LinkedIn and look for OGGN, our actually page. So we had a couple of people ask about things and we talked about some of our industry mixers doing. If you follow our company page on LinkedIn, you'll be notified of all that stuff. And then once you sign up for anything that we do, we now have your email address. We won't ever spam it. We we will never sell it, but we will update you on everything we do. So, you know, follow us on LinkedIn and then attend one of our industry mixers, get on that email list and you'll be notified of everything. Speaking of notified of email list and stuff. If you like the show, if you like the first Friday Q&A and you have a question you want to submit, or if you want to tell me I'm wrong about something, it's very simple. Go to OGGN.com or oilandgasthisweek.com is the place for you to enter your question. If we use your question, you get a super shout out on the air. And then if you'd like myself or any of our industry experts to come to your event, bring a live podcast, host a panel, let us know. I'd be happy to share the details. You ready to get out of here, Paige? Yes. All right. So Sam, this one's for you. Remember folks, Do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.